Well, it is indeed good to be back with you all this morning. I, I really do want to thank your pastor and uh, session for once again giving me the, the great privilege of bringing God's Word to His people. Uh, it's a wonderful privilege to do that. So please pray with me that His Spirit would now give us ears to hear, hearts to obey what He would teach us. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, God and Father of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, whose, whose spirit spoke through the wise men of Israel. I would pray, Lord, that you would pour out on us now that same spirit as we read the pages they wrote. Unfold to us this morning your word and give us light. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'd like for us to look at what I call the Lord's Own Sermon, and it's taken from one of the great accounts uh, of Jesus' appearance to His disciples following His resurrection. Now, Marty just read this entire account from Luke 24, so if you haven't already turned there, please turn there with me. Now, there are tons and tons of sermons that could be preached from uh, Luke 24. Um, and I want to preach one from verses 25, 26, and 27. So Marty read that, but let me read that again, beginning with uh, Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. May God bless the reading, the hearing, and preaching of his word this morning. Now, on this occasion of, of meeting these two disciples, it says in the text, one unnamed, the other was named Cleopas. They were walking to Emmaus. Jesus preached a sermon to them. That's what verse 27 is all about. It says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he preached a sermon from the entire Old Testament because that's what this phrase means. You know, the Jews had a way of talking about the Old Testament. It was their Bible. And they divided it up into three parts. It had the law, the law of Moses, had the prophets, the prophetic books, and finally the writings, which had to do with the historical books of the Old Testament. They even had a little word for this division. They called it the Tanakh, which is composed, as, as many Hebrew words are, of three consonants. And each of the three consonants stands for one of the parts of their Bible. The T stands for the Torah. We understand that, the law. The N stands for the, the Hebrew word nevayim, which means prophets. And finally, the K stands for the ketuyim, which means the writings. So, so you see, when Luke records here that Jesus taught them from Moses, the prophets, and all the scriptures, it's a way of saying that he preached his sermon from the entire Old Testament. Now, that's very interesting. I wonder... If you've ever read this chapter and paused at this point to ask yourself which text Jesus used in this sermon, 
Now it says here, he used these texts to show that it was necessary that he be crucified and buried and rise again. And we go back to the Old Testament and we ask, what text did he use? What verses did he use? Where did he get these things from? Have you ever thought about that? Luke doesn't give us the answer here. All he says is that Jesus preached from the Old Testament. But I I hate to give up on a question like that. And I find myself saying, surely there must be some way of figuring out what the Lord's sermon was to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You say, how are you going to do that? Well, I believe there's a very good way, and it's this. It's from the teachings of the apostles. You know, if you go to the book of Acts, we find all the apostles preaching the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection and teaching and teaching that using verses drawn from the Old Testament. So we ask ourselves, where did they get these Old Testament texts from? And how did they know to interpret the Old Testament that particular way? And the answer is presumably they learned it from Jesus, just like they learned everything else. Now, we know that they didn't naturally understand things this way. So what Jesus must have done, not only on this occasion in Luke 24, but in that entire period of 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, is to take the Old Testament and open it up for them so they might understand the way in which all the Old Testament teaching was about him. Let me just give you a quick illustration of this from Peter's preaching at Pentecost. Now, the reason I mention this, and I'm going to come back to it in a moment, is that his message at Pentecost was obviously impromptu. It was pretty much off the cuff, on the spur of the moment. If you recall the situation All the disciples were in the upper room. They weren't expecting anything particularly dramatic to happen. But suddenly, the Holy Spirit came upon them. The text says they began to speak in other tongues. They were preaching the gospel. And a large crowd gathered to find out what was going on. And I suppose, I don't know this, but I suppose because Peter had the biggest mouth, He was the most outspoken and bold. The others turned to him and said, Peter, you've you've got to go out there and tell them what's going on in here. And so Peter, now on the spot, has to preach a sermon. And he does. He goes back to the texts that are in the Old Testament, and he gives the text, and he expounds it. And then he goes on to another text, And he expounds that text, and he goes on to another one, and he expounds that text. And we say, how in the world could he do that on the fly? How could he do that on such short notice? You know, he, he hadn't spent several weeks in his study preparing for that particular message. Well, the answer, of course, is that Jesus has been, had been teaching these things to the apostles all along. And so when the opportunity presented itself, it was these Old Testament texts taught by Jesus that immediately came to Peter's mind. And so what I'd like for us to do just very quickly this morning 
is to go through a few of these sermons. We find them in Acts. We find them in other places in the New Testament. And this is what Jesus probably preached to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus on that first Easter Sunday as recorded by us in Luke 24. Let's take that sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost, first of all. If you keep your finger there in Luke 24, turn over to Acts chapter 2. This was the very first Christian sermon ever preached. And as we go through it, you'll see that Peter used three Old Testament texts to preach from. The first one, which begins at Acts 2, verse 17, was from Joel 2, chapter 2. I'm going to preach on this text next Sunday when I'm here with you again from Joel 2. Joel 2 was a prophecy that had to do with Pentecost itself. It says that in the last days, the Lord was going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Acts 2.17 says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Now, Peter begins his sermon here because that's what had just been happening. And so he told the people, look, you know, there isn't anything peculiar happening here. These people aren't drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. But rather, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly, Peter says, what what the prophet Joel prophesied so many years ago. And having said this, Peter then goes on in Acts 2 to preach Jesus Christ to these people. I want to pause here and just say that all these early sermons preached by the apostles had to do with Jesus. Jesus is at the very heart of all of these early sermons. You know, these early preachers didn't preach about felt needs. They didn't preach about social issues. They didn't preach about the Roman government how you might change it by getting an evangelical elected to a high position. They didn't do any of that. They simply preached Jesus crucified and risen. And Peter, after he's gotten by this text from Joel, he goes on and he expounds two additional Old Testament texts from the book of Psalms. The first one, which begins in Acts 2.25, is from Psalm 16. Look there with me in Acts 2.25. Peter quotes verses 8 through 11 of the psalm, and then he goes on to explain it. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, that psalm is identified with David's name. David wrote it. But I want you to see, David could not have said these words entirely about himself. He said here, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption or decay. 
Well, he points out in the text here, David was in the grave. His body did decay. And Peter calls attention to that fact, uh, the very fact in the sermon in verse 29. He said, look, the patriarch David died. He was buried. And if you don't believe that, just go down and open up the tomb. I don't recommend it, but if you want to, you'll find that his body is still there. So if this psalm isn't about David, who's it about? Well, the answer is that it's about the Messiah. And in it, David is prophesying the resurrection. He's saying that God will not abandon the Messiah's soul to the grave. He will not let him see corruption. He will not let his body see decay. And so Peter quotes that text from Psalm 16. And having been taught by Jesus what it actually means, beginning at verse 29, he preaches a four-point sermon. Not a good Presbyterian sermon, but he preaches a four-point sermon. And it goes like this. Point number one. David did not write this about himself. Point number two, David wrote that about the Messiah. Point number three, what he prophesied about the Messiah has been fulfilled by Jesus, who is therefore that Messiah. And point number four, we are witnesses of these things. Now, that's a powerful, powerful message. You know, as preachers would say, that'll preach. That would be a good sermon for pastors today. But Peter wasn't finished. He goes on in Acts 2, verse 34. Look there with me. He brings in another Old Testament text from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's very interesting as well. Why do you suppose Peter used this particular verse? Why did this particular verse spring so quickly to his mind on this particular occasion? Well, it goes back to an incident from the life of Jesus himself. If you recall, toward the end of his ministry, his his enemies were always trying to trip him up with a lot of trick questions. Now, they, they never ever threw Jesus off balance. And when they'd finally run out of questions... Jesus said, all right, you've asked me a lot of questions, so I'm going to ask you a question. Here it is. What do you think about the Christ? That is, who is the Messiah? And his enemy said, you know, that's an easy question. He's the son of David. God told David that the Messiah was going to be born in his line, and so the Messiah is the son of David. Okay, Jesus said. I'll grant you that. But now tell me this. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Because he says, and then Jesus quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Do you see the question that Jesus is raising here? See, they all knew the Messiah was going to be born of the line of David. David was going to have a son, and that son would have a son. And somewhere down the line, one of those descendants was going to be the Messiah. They knew that. But here in this psalm, 
David addresses this person as Lord, that is, as God. And Jesus asks the question, how in the world can David do that? You see, it would be right for a son to use the word Lord of his father in an honorary sense. That would be okay. But it wouldn't be okay for a father to use that word of his son. And the religious leaders were stumped. They couldn't answer the question of how David could refer to his son as Lord. But you see, the obvious answer is that the one who was to be born in David's line, the Messiah, was to be God. See, that's the only way he could at the same time both be David's son and David's Lord. So you see, this psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, clearly teaches the deity of Jesus. You know, and, and here's the point. You know, Peter must have heard Jesus explain Psalm 110, verse 1, this way. And so at Pentecost, he remembered it. And he, wrapped, and he declared it as he wrapped up this sermon in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And do we not think this might have been Jesus' sermon to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus? I think so. And you know, that's also our sermon today. You see, Jesus is not just some ancient figure. This Jesus is Lord himself. He is God in Christ. He's the Messiah, the one of whom the Old Testament prophesied. He's the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And he's the one to whom you and I have to give an accounting at the last day. Well, where else could we go? in the New Testament to find Old Testament text used as sermons. I want you to turn over a few pages to Acts 4 and look at verse 11. You know, in Acts 4, verse 11, Peter preaches another sermon. This time he's preaching it before the Sanhedrin. And he uses as his text Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that was rejected by you, the builders, has become the cornerstone. You see, that's a prophecy of Jesus Christ being the Messiah, of being the cornerstone. And dear ones, Jesus still is the cornerstone. He's the foundation of the church. And whenever the church gets off of that, when it, when it begins to teach something else or begins to recast its gospel to, to fit the mood of the day, it loses what is essential to it. It loses its very heart. Also in Acts 4, when Peter and John were released from jail, they went to the Christians in Jerusalem who, when they saw them, broke into a song of praise to God. And in that context, in Acts 4, verses 25 and 26. They recited another Old Testament text, Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
You know, most of us, I think, know that Psalm 2 is a mocking description of the way the kings and the rulers of this earth believe that they can do without God. They say to themselves, you know, we, we've got to shake off religion. It's holding us back from doing what we want to do. It's hard to, to do that by, our, by yourself. What we've got to do is get together. There's strength in numbers. And they did in that day what our country is trying to do today, to do without God. You know, we say we, we don't want God in our national life. We, he doesn't have anything to do with politics. He has no business intruding himself into the public square. Shake off God. We don't need God. And dear ones, we are reaping the consequences of that terribly misguided belief. You know, and Psalm 2 goes on and says that God who's up in heaven looking down is not shaking in the slightest before this rebellion. In fact, it says that God laughs. And it's not a nice laugh. It's a laugh of derision. And he replies to these kings by saying, I have set my king on Zion, even on my holy hill. Jesus is that king. And so this psalm says that whether you like it or not, one day every knee is going to bow before him. And so you see, the early Christians must have learned to understand this interpretation of Psalm 2 from Jesus. He must have taught them that. Well, our, our time is short, but I want you to turn over quickly to Acts chapter 8. Look at verses 32 and 33. Acts 8, 32 and 33. And in, the, in those verses we find Philip preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. And he is expounding for this eunuch an Old Testament text from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. It says, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Now, that passage from Isaiah 53 speaks of Christ himself being the innocent sacrifice for you and me who are guilty. Christ died in our place. And can we doubt that all of these Old Testament passages must have been the text that Jesus taught to these two disciples on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus? Now, how about the book of Hebrews? You know, you don't have to turn there, but trust me, it's full of Old Testament texts, seven in the first chapter alone, four more in chapter two. You know, Hebrews is a book written by a Jew to Jews to tell them that everything in their religion of Judaism has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And therefore, they should give up all these old forms. They should give up all these old practices and trust in Jesus Christ alone, wholeheartedly as their Messiah. You know, you can go anywhere in the New Testament, and it's filled with Scripture texts from the Old Testament pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's even more. You know, the author of Hebrews, if you read it very carefully, says that not just the texts, but even the symbols and the themes 
And the stories of the Old Testament have their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Now, now, as soon as you move beyond the text and you start to talk about the symbols and themes and stories of the Old Testament, you open up this whole treasure chest of possibilities. So, you see, it's not just the case of the Old Testament containing a scattering of obscure verses here and there that refer to Jesus. It's not that at all. You see, the whole flow of our text, beginning with Moses and the prophets and all the scriptures, meant that he showed the whole Old Testament was about him. Anywhere you go in the Old Testament, you find Jesus. A quick look. Let's start with Genesis. We know that Genesis 3.15 is the first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. It tells us that the seed of the woman, that's Jesus, would eventually be born and would destroy the works of Satan. Now, that's, that's certainly a great prophecy. But it's not just that. Genesis is filled with types and stories and references to Jesus Christ. All the promises given to the patriarchs in Genesis find their ultimate fulfillment in him. You move on to Exodus. Exodus gives us all of those instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And every part of that tabernacle points to Christ. When you first came into the courtyard, there was this this great altar. It was where the sacrifices were made. It was a way of saying that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. It pointed forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. You go into the holy place, the first enclosure. There you have the table of showbread. It points to Jesus Christ who said, I am the bread of life. You go into the, uh, there's a candlestick also there in the holy place. A menorah providing light for the interior of this enclosure. It points to Jesus Christ who said, I am the light of the world. Then there's that great veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And beyond that veil in the dark recesses of the tabernacle, there's the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the presence of God containing the law of Moses, which you and I have broken. It's a symbol of judgment. If you recall, it was there once a year on the Day of Atonement that the blood was sprinkled indicating the way of approach to God. You see, all that points to Jesus Christ. And you recall when Jesus was crucified, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And that was God's way of saying, look, the sacrifice has been made. You don't have to repeat that again and again and again on the Day of Atonement. Jesus, my son, has died for your sins. And if you come to him by faith, the way is not only open into my presence, it is open forever. Do you think Jesus might have taught the importance of all this symbolism and these themes to the Emmaus disciples as they were walking along? I suspect he did. What about Leviticus? Leviticus has all those 
somewhat boring instructions about the different kinds of sacrifices. Every one of those instructions points to Jesus Christ in some way. There's, there's the sacrifice of the scapegoat where they confessed the sins of the people over the head of the goat. And then the goat was driven away into the wilderness. And the author of Hebrews picks up on that and says that's why Jesus was crucified outside the walls. It's a way of saying that Jesus bore our sin away from us. In numbers, Jesus is that bronze serpent which Moses put on a staff. So people who had been bitten by the snakes and were dying might look at it in faith and be healed. And Jesus himself picked up on that in the third chapter of John where he's speaking to Nicodemus. And he says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. In Deuteronomy, we learn about one who would be like the prophet Moses speaking the words of God, but who would be superior to Moses in every way. And on and on and on it goes through all the books of the Old Testament until you come finally to the book of Malachi, the last Old Testament book. And Jesus' resurrection is prefigured there as the Son of Righteousness, risen with healing in His wings. Well, as I wrap this up this morning. I have to say that I don't really know how much of what I presented to you this morning was actually taught by Jesus to the Emmaus disciples so long ago. I don't know these things because Scripture doesn't really tell us. But I do know a number of things. For one thing, it was a long journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about seven miles. 60 stadium. It would have taken the better part of a morning and afternoon. And we know that when they arrived at Emmaus, the two disciples asked Jesus to stay on for a while. It says there they even had a meal together. And so there was plenty of time for Jesus to teach on these Old Testament texts and maybe even others and to explain them at length. And I also know this. Not only did he preach the gospel from the Old Testament, and not only did he preach it in that day, Jesus Christ continues to preach that same gospel in our day. Wherever his people, who are called by his name, search out the scriptures to find him where he alone can be found. And how do I know that? I know that because that's what he did for the Emmaus disciples. You see, even after he had revealed himself to them, He opened the Scriptures to them. That's what the disciples say in verse 32 of Luke 24. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? And we read as we come to the end of Luke's Gospel, verses 45 through 48. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Dear ones, the cross 
and the resurrection of Jesus Christ stand at the very focal point of history. That's what life is all about. Do you want to be wise? Study the Bible and find that these things are true. That's the way to do it. You want to have knowledge? Do you, do you want to grow in knowledge? Read the Bible. Beginning at Genesis and go all the way through it. Ending at Revelation. That's the way to do it. And as you read it, ask the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks in its pages, to preach his own sermon directly to your heart. And what you find if you do that, if you do it honestly and prayerfully, is that the Bible will never be the same to you again. It will actually come alive. You'll see Jesus Christ everywhere in its pages. Look for him because he's there. And more importantly, you won't be the same either because you'll come to love him and you'll recognize that the greatest joy and responsibility and privilege you can ever have in life is to know him and to grow in knowledge of him and to serve him to your life's end and then to serve him in heaven forever and ever. Let's pray. Now, our Father, we are indeed thankful that our Lord took so much time to teach these early disciples what the Bible is all about, who in their turn have taught it to us in what we have in our New Testament. We confess that there's so much about it that we don't understand. None of us know the Bible as we should, and we're impoverished as a result. We are not a rich and knowledgeable people. We're a poor and ignorant people. Give us grace to turn away from all the distractions of this world, the material things that fill our lives and which draw us to that which is perishing, which will all be gone in a few years. And Father, we pray that you would direct us instead to those things which are eternal and above all to Jesus Christ, who is that King who will reign and is reigning and who will be on his throne forever and ever in whom it is our privilege to know, our joy to worship and serve. And grant that for his sake we might be found faithful servants as we tell others about him in our day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.